Open your Bibles, if you're not there already, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and here we go. Last Sunday, we started looking at what is really the main body of this letter of 1 Corinthians, and Paul begins to address his, his really big concern for the church there, and it's that, what we call that relational dissonance, the disharmony. The church at Corinth was a very fractured church. And so for four chapters, in a sense, the whole, the whole letter of 1 Corinthians, he's, he's elaborating on that appeal from verse 10. Look back at verse 10 with me. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, what? That you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And so like we said, like every, every particular issue that he's going to deal with in this letter, he brings them back to Christ and he wants them to think about everything through the lens of the gospel. And so he starts down that path with this basic appeal in verses 10 to 17 like we looked at last week. And then we get to verse 18 and he seems to digress a little. Uh, starting in, in verse 18, going really through the end of chapter 2, he's not going to speak directly or explicitly about you know, the problem of divisions or the, or the pursuit of unity in the church or anything like that. We, when we get to chapter 3, that theme's going to become very obvious again, and it'll be right front and center. But this is what I want you to see as we're looking at this, verses of this section over the next few weeks. This isn't a, really a rabbit trail that Paul's going down. He, he's, he's not chasing some random thoughts. Not like he came out of verse 17 writing this and he said, you know, Christ didn't send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. And yeah, gospel. Let me, let me tell you what the gospel is all about. And so he, he chases that thought for a while and opens that up for a little bit. And he's, he's going and then he, and then he kind of catches himself and says, no, what, what were we talking What was I thinking? Oh, unity. Yeah. Uh, sorry for the, I got distracted. So let's get back to unity. That's not what's happening here in these verses. I know it can maybe appear like that on the surface. No, he is actually very methodically laying the groundwork here and the foundation of his encouragement to unity in the church. That's what this passage is about, brothers and sisters. He's getting below, he said and she said. He's getting beneath, you know, I'm of Paul and I'm of Paulus and, and, uh, and under the kind of this argument about that particular issue and all of those little kind of surfacey issues. He's getting to the root cause of the Corinthian conflict. He, he's, and he's getting to the essential cure that's the, that they need. And so, and the case that he's making, again, is that everything has to be reevaluated in light of the cross. That's the case he's making. The central event at the very heart of the Christian story is the death of Jesus Christ. And that has to be the lens through which we see divisions in the church. That's, that's, what, that's what he's driving at here. So this has everything to do with the church, with the unity of the church. It has everything to do with this church, the Baraka family. And so the more, the more cruciform we are as a church, the word cruciform just means cross-shaped. The more cross-shaped Baraka is, the more unity we'll be able to thrive here in this assembly. Because the cross gets at the root problem of pride that fuels so much of the division that we find in church. And so the kind of the big idea of this week and, and really the next couple weeks is this, is that the message of, of the cross, the message of the cross that divides humanity actually unites the church. 
That's what he's laboring to show us today. And so this morning, we're primarily going to see and focus on that first part. It will be, it will be more implicit, the unity, and how this speaks to unity. But, but next week, we're going to see very explicitly how the cross unites us as a church. So first thing I'll say as we unpack this is this, is that the, the cross of Christ, it disallows neutrality. We see this in verse 18. It refuses neutrality, just like no single person I've ever met is neutral about cilantro. Uh, so you think it's either so wonderfully delicious or you think it's disgusting and tastes like soap. I'm in that second category. And so, thank you. All right. And so, so don't put it in your carrying dishes. That's, that's my, my public service announcement. Um, no, or cats, you know, some think they're wonderful companions, others think they're little demon babies or something like that. But I haven't met too many people that are, ah, they're okay. Um, but no, no one's neutral about the cross. And when I say the cross, I mean the message and the, the essential meaning of the cross. I realize, you know, the image of the cross in our particular day and our particular context is not terribly offensive or, or people are okay with that. I mean, you can go to Target and find greeting cards with a sympathy card with a cross on the front, and everybody's kind of okay with that, and, and people decorate their homes and wear it as jewelry, and so, so it's, it's rather ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's safe. It's inoffensive in our day. Now, in Paul's day, that wasn't the case at all. I mean, the cross was this image of unspeakable evil and shame and rejection and, and punishment. D.A. Carson says the, an equivalent image to the cross in our day would be like a Hiroshima cloud or, or uh, an Auschwitz gas chamber. I mean, that's kind of the imagery that it would evoke for them. But regardless of how the image is viewed in our context compared to theirs, the message, the essential meaning of Christ crucified, it it always divides people. Nobody is neutral when they really begin to understand what that's saying. And so this is what we see in verse 18. For the word of the cross, it's folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Again, look at verse 17 and see the connection here. He's, he's talked about these words of eloquent wisdom. That's not how Paul's preaching. And, 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 and yet he's sharply contrasting that here with the word of cross. So the world wants wisdom. The world wants powerful talkers. That, those ideas of wisdom and power are intricately related in, in the minds of that culture. And so they prize this in their Corinthian culture, just like we prize it in our own culture. That's why we have things like TED Talks and why the, the, somebody gives a microphone and they have this, this powerful voice for, our, our, for the world and for America. We talk like that. And so they were very impressed with powerful, persuasive uh, rhetoric. And, and so the, the world clamors for these words, words and words of eloquent wisdom and notice that, it's, it's plural, it's word, lots of words. But what do we have to offer? We have a single word, the word of the cross. That, that contrast is very explicit. So the word of the cross is, is that summary, the gospel message the, that's centered upon the death of Jesus Christ. It's the message that the way of salvation isn't through human striving or learning or earning, accomplishing. It is only through an accused criminal's execution. That's what that's saying. And that simple, straightforward proclamation 
of that word, it drives this wedge through the entire world. And you are forced to be on one side or the other. No one rides the fence. It refuses neutrality, the cross. You reject it as foolishness and you see it as a stumbling block or you receive it as the very power of God. And so on the one hand, you have those who are perishing, those, those who are on the road to eternal destruction. And they see the message of the cross as utter folly, foolishness. The, the Greek word we can understand, it's moriah. We get a word moronic from this. It's, it's idiocy. Crazy, silly, utter nonsense. That's what he's saying. And to the Jews, he, and, and we'll, we'll look down at verse 23, and, 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 and the Greeks understand it as foolishness. The Jews, it's a stumbling block, a scandalon. It's scandalous. It's this insurmountable obstacle. That, 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 that it's this barrier to faith that cannot possibly be overcome. I mean, you just think of the, how absurd that is to say, and particularly in those Jewish ears, Christ Messiah, the, the king who's to come, the promised one, crucified. That's good news. You're telling me that's good news. That's like saying, uh, this, this, I've got this wonderful news to declare to you that your team just got blown away in the championship. That's good news. Congratulations, graduates. There's great news. Your, all of your graduate, graduation activities have been canceled. Good news. I mean, it's, it, it doesn't compute. It, it doesn't go together. Christ crucified. And, and so this is, what he, this is what he's saying. This is how it's viewed. It's viewed as folly. It's viewed as a stumbling block. But on the other hand, for those who are being saved, those who are justified sinners moving toward that final redemption, they see the cross as the very power of God. It's not crazy. It's not a message that just... It's not about power. It is the very power of God. So as believers, brothers and sisters, we, we view the word of the cross completely different from unbelievers. Nobody's neutral. You see it as weakness and folly. as You see it as wisdom and power. And you cannot convince people otherwise. Apart from the Lord opening your eyes to the light of the gospel, you couldn't be convinced otherwise. We'll come back to that in just a little bit. Secondly, so the, first, the cross, it, it refuses neutrality. It, it divides humanity in this way. Secondly, the cross proclaims victory. He proclaims victory. Now, a statement like that sounds ridiculous to those who are perishing, to those who view the cross as folly. The, the, the cross proclaims victory. The cross represents defeat. It's failure. But the cross of defeat is actually this guarantee, this pronouncement of victory. That's what Paul's saying here. Victory over all attempts to come to God on their own. And so this is the, this is the verbal. I realize the next few verses, they, I mean, there's some real zingers here in this passage of quotable passages. And then you get into some of these verses, you're like, how does this relate? And so let me just give you the verbal picture that Paul's painting here in verses 19 to 21. It's like... It's like the world puts all of its hopes, the world together, humanity puts all of its hopes in these two mighty champions, wisdom and power. And, and, and these are the means of knowing God and securing salvation, whether they're explicitly religious or not, but this is, this is what all humanity has done. And so in verse 22, this is expressed in this Jewish demand this for, for powerful signs and this Greek desire for wisdom. Now, 
When you get to verse 22, it, they're not saying like, you know, if you'll just show me signs, then I'll believe in Christ crucified. And if you'll just, you know, come up with some clever way of saying it, then I'll believe. That's not what that's about. What, what that is expressing in their demand and that desire, it's expressing the same delusion that all people everywhere are under. And it's this, is that we can reach God by our preferred means. It's idolatry. It, it's it's, it's it's we, we, we're, we want to make God in our image. One commentator says it this way. The very demand for proof from both parties means that they set themselves up as an authority that can pass judgment on God. It, this is nothing less than idolatry. And so all of humanity's attempts to come to God and to know God on their own, in their own terms, and all of their hopes and the gods of their own making, wisdom and power, they're dressed, they're armed for battle, and, and, and there are these impressive warriors waiting in the battlefield, and then you have the cross. This symbol of utter rejection, defeat, humiliation, shame, and it, it goes to the battlefield and it lays waste to those warriors of wisdom and power. That's what this is announcing. That's the picture. So Paul reaches all the way back into the Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 29 to, to show the victory of the cross. So you see, he's quoting Isaiah 29, 14, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the deserting I will thwart. If you want to look back in Isaiah 29, real quick with me. And so in Isaiah 29, the, kind of the, the, the context here uh, is, is, is Isaiah is looking forward to this time of judgment when God is, is going to move against his people for the way that they think they can hide their sin from the Lord. They think they can outsmart God, basically. And so God complains in verse, in verse 16. He complains that the wise, they've turned things upside down. That's the wording that's used. They've set themselves up as gods. They see themselves as the creator rather than creatures. And, and they even say to God that God has no understanding, verse 16. And so, but God's going to show. He is wise. He is in control. And so he goes on to show. And, and if you continue reading into chapter 30, the, 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 the wise, they form these plans. We're going to form this alliance with this treaty with Egypt, and that's going to hold off this invasion from Syria. The Assyrians are threatening to come and, and wreak havoc. And they said, well, let's, let's, let's put our best minds together. Okay, let's form an alliance with Egypt. And so though what we see is God thwarts those plans. And Assyria gets word of this alliance with Egypt, and so they actually accelerate their plans to invade, and they come in full force. And so what, what, what this is saying is that is that God's salvation of his people, it comes through a plan that seems very weak. What I mean, his people are invaded. They're subdued, they're humbled, they're, they're defeated in the process. And, and yet out of that defeat comes God's deliverance. And he saves his people. And so you can see why this text suits the, what Paul is saying here. What seemed like weakness and defeat, Calvary, became the very pronouncement of God's victory and success and power. And so that's, that's what those questions in verse 20 are all about. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Is not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Listen, I know I, I kind of, I've, I've always kind of read it this way, like Paul's kind of talking smack here to, to the you know, the so-called experts of the day, you're like, bring it on, you know, you, you bring the, your best and brightest, let's meet at the debate hall, 
You know, you got your eloquent words of wisdom. I've got the word of the cross, and I think I could take you down. That's not what he's saying. This is this declaration of victory over all rivals. One commentator, I think, gets a sense of this very well. He says, they, the, the, the questions, they're not invitations for all comers to enter the fray, but they are cries of the victor after the battle has been fought and won. The wise, the teacher of the law, and the philosopher of this age are nowhere to be found, for their wisdom has been destroyed and their intelligence frustrated. They have been outsmarted and upstaged. They have nothing more to offer. They have slunk away in defeat. Now, does that mean that the orators in Corinth and Paul's time or the TED Talkers in our day will, are admitting their defeat? Of course not. No, they still see the cross as folly, but the victory has already been won and proclaimed. It's no, it's no longer up for debate. For debate. The, the way to know God, which did not and could not come through man's wisdom and power, has been opened to us through Christ's death on the cross. This is, this is victory. The cross proclaims victory. And just think of the implications of this in, in the realm of evangelism, brothers and sisters, and, and, and to proclaiming the message of the gospel. Our, our aim is not to win others by our compelling arguments and persuasiveness. No, that's not it. The, it's not up for debate anymore. Our, our aim is simply to proclaim the already secured victory of Christ. It's inviting, it's urging others to believe and be saved by this word of the cross that is the very power of God. The cross isn't, isn't um, a, a, a weapon to, to, to win the war. It has already won the war. And so we simply proclaim the victory. But this isn't just relevant to evangelism. In fact, that's not the context here. What Paul is doing in this context, he's eroding that temptation to pride that was causing so much division in the church. That these believers, they're deeply influenced by that wisdom-loving, power-loving culture, and they clung to this view of wisdom and power that puffed them up and caused them to look down on other people. And so... We who know God, what he's saying is we're not to be congratulated for our astute uh, or insight or our perceptive understanding like we've reasoned ourselves to this place. No, in knowing God, we are no wiser than anyone else. In seeing the cross as being the saving work of God, we can't claim it's because we're so wise and so discerning and, and on our own since no one, and I mean no one, would ever look at the cross and say, yeah, that's it. That's God at work. We would not do that. Something else had to make the difference, and that brings us to the last point. Last thing, the cross is. So the cross, it forces, forces sides. It refuses neutrality. Secondly, the cross just pronounces victory. And then third, the cross emphasizes God's activity. It is this, it is this tap, it is this, um, Power, it just opens up to see the work of God, not our work. We, we, many of you saw the rocket launch yesterday, and I, I was busy and missed it, and, but I went back and watched it recorded. And, and so you just see, it's so impressive. It takes so much power to get two men out of the gravitational pull of Earth. 
I mean, it's just so much power. They, they, they can't climb to the highest mountain, to Mount Everest, and, you know, really work and then jump to break free from Earth's gravitational pull. That, that, that won't work. They need power. They need the power of something else to get them out of that. What, this is, what is it that possibly, what could possibly break a, a sinner free from the gravitational pull of seeing the cross as foolishness? What could possibly get us to believe in Christ and Him crucified to know God and to be saved? What could, what could move us from being those who are perishing to, though, to being those who are being saved? Can we self-will that? Do we have something innately in us that others don't have? Is it genetics? What is it? No. None seek God, Scripture declares. We, we need power to come from outside of ourselves if we'll ever break free from putting our hope in our own ways of getting to God. We need, we need the Lord. So we see here in, the, in these verses that, there, that, that we're going to see this even more clearly next week. But, but we see God's activity, God's working. And it's emphasized by the cross being the way of salvation. The cross says it can be no other way other than the Lord. And that's why we get to this verse 31. Our only boast is the Lord. That's what he's building towards. The, the Corinthians thought they had so much to boast in, and he's bringing them back down. The cross is that place where we all come at the same, it's, it's this leveling effect, and we say, no, the cross says it's all God. It's God's wisdom. You see that first in verse 21. It, it's in the wisdom of God that the, that the world failed to know God through its own wisdom. Verse 21. This is his good design. What he's saying is God in his wisdom, he, he blockaded all the roads that men tried to build to you know, work to God, to attain uh, n- you know, knowledge of God through their own power and intellect. God in his wisdom shut all those down and he said, no, it's through a, it's through a single gate. It's through the cross. That's it. It's the wisdom of God that's designed this. Secondly, we see God's pleasure, his purpose at work in verse 21. It, it, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So ple- pleasure and purpose are very closely connected. It, God has deliberately, purposefully, with pleasure, not reluctantly, he's laid out the way by which his people should come to salvation. It's his pleasure. God, God planned both that people will be saved and God planned the means by which that salvation would be accomplished. Third, we see, it, we see God's activity in his announcement. Verse 21 again, it pleased God through the folly of here's the, what we preach to save those who believe. So, so the, the message, the word of the cross, the gospel this is what's preached. The, the, that message by which the Lord saves those who believe. It's, it's God's message. Well, I'll make that clear. It's not something we drafted and we edited and we revised over a long period of time and then finally we, we figured it out. No, it's God delivered. It's God given. And, and that's seen clearly, maybe not as obviously in the, in the English, but in the Greek it's helpful here because the word he uses for preach, it's not the word just used for public speaking or rhetoric. This is... It's not a word that any of those self-respecting orators or, 
or uh, debaters or philosophers in Paul's day there, it's not a word they would have ever used for themselves. It would, it would have been incredibly insulting to say that they were preachers in this sense. Because this word preach, it just simply means to herald. It, 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 the herald's task isn't to create some kind of clever, persuasive, uh, moving, powerful message that, that will affect hearers. The herald's job is simply to convey effectively the already articulated message of another. So the emphasis here is on that message. And so we, what I'm wanting you to see is this is God's activity, God's doing in, in giving this message. That's what matters. It's not you. It's not me. It, it's, it's, it's simply we preach, we herald Christ crucified. That's the message that the Lord, that's the announcement that God has spoken and we simply repeat. That's why we were saved because someone repeated God's message and we Believed and were saved. Third, fourth, it's God's rescue. And, and we see this simply in that word, uh, the folly of what we preach. He's pleased to save those who believe. In the plan of God, people are saved. God saves sinners. His, his action, he takes the foolish message of the gospel and he does this mighty miracle in the hearts of his hearers. And, and he saves, he rescues, he delivers those who believe he's doing the action fifth we see his activity highlighted and emphasized by the cross in his call verse 24 down christ crucified we see earlier is his stumbling block to the sign demanding jews it's it's folly to wisdom seeking gentiles but verse 24 to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. They're called. They're called. That's the language of election. It's being chosen by God for salvation. Those who believe are being saved because they have been called. And so this, this call of God, it's not like you're getting a phone call in the evening and somebody's asking you uh, to come over for dinner, you know, in three months from now when that's possible. Uh, and you can refuse or accept that invitation. No, that's the invitation of the gospel. We, we invite, we go to the highways and the hedges and we say, all oh, who come, please come, come, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this call of God that he's referring to here is, 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 is the call that creates the response that it commands. This is like a wake-up call at a hotel. You don't get a wake-up call at the hotel if they even still do that anymore. I don't know. Um, but they don't call you and say, hey, it's time to wake up. They, no, it's the call itself that wakes you up. There's nothing that happens once, once the call comes. The call is the, it creates the response it commands. And so calling is viewing salvation from the, from the perspective of God. He calls, and, it, and it's underscoring the gracious and free character of our salvation. That's what he's doing. And so you can see how this emphasis on God's calling is this, is this way of deflating Corinthian and Barakian pride. It, it undermines any sense of achievement in those who've been saved. It, those whom God has called, yes, we're better off than others, but we have zero grounds for considering ourselves better than anyone else. It is only the grace of God. That's what he's highlighting. And then finally, verse 25, you, you see God's success, and this is just 
kind of a capstone on this paragraph. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Uh, a very literal reading of this, I think, brings it out more clearly. He says, the, the foolish thing of God is wiser than men. The weak thing of God is stronger than men. And the context is very clear. The foolish and the weak thing is the cross. It, it, it's the cross. This, this God at his worst in man's eyes is better than man at his best. The cross is the final word. So, brothers and sisters, this, this, this passage, far from being a rabbit trail, it, far from being a digression, it is actually laying groundwork for what we're going to see in the next few chapters here. And, and as, as we better understand what it means to be a church shaped by the cross, to be a cruciform church. So what, is, what, what are some ways in which that would look like for us? And we're going to see this as we unfold this letter. But let me just give you a few statements. I had a whole long list, and I shrunk it down to just a couple today. First thing I say, the, the cruciform church is at rest together. We are at rest together. By that I mean we've, we've climbed off of the performance treadmill thinking that, that we are somehow earning and achieving and, and maintaining our salvation by our effort. We are, we're no longer stepping over and onto, on one another, trying to prove ourselves, justify ourselves before one another. No, the, sh- the church that is really shaped by the cross understands, as we sang earlier, Jesus paid it all. There's, there, there's, our status as God's children, nothing we can do, nothing we can do to contribute to it, being more or less secure. It's settled because of what Jesus has done. And so it doesn't make us passive or apathetic. We press on, as Paul says in Philippians 3.12. We press on and we run. Why? Because Christ has laid hold of us. That's the first thing. Second, the cruciform church, it it fosters humility. And we see this in Philippians chapter 2. You're very familiar with this passage. You all, or we'd say y'all, complete my joy being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Then he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Don't look after your own interests, but also look after the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. What? Who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The more we, uh, we see the cross, the more we're shaped by the cross, the more humility thrives. Third, the cruciform church, it overflows with grace and forgiveness. We who've been forgiven of our trespasses, Colossians 2 says, because of the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands, because that's been canceled, set aside, nailed to the cross, Paul says there, if we've been so graciously forgiven by the Lord who died for us, how can we fail to be gracious and patient and forgiving toward one another when we sin, stumble, and fall? It's been said many times, and it's been attributed, this quote's been attributed to a thousand different people, so I don't know who said it first. But the, the church isn't a museum for the saints, but it's a hospital for sinners. And so a cross-shaped, a cruciform church, it really gets that. And so we can be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven us. Through the cross. Fourth, the cruciform church pursues peacemaking. We're going to talk a lot about this. 
Ephesians 2 talks about this. We've been reconciled to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. So his conclusion is we're fellow citizens, members of one household together. Changes everything. And then, of course, the cruciform church. We have a message to declare. We, we really believe the word of the cross is the power of God. We really believe victory has already been won. And so we herald this message that we've been given. We preach it to, to the lost. We preach it to one another. We, 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 we simply proclaim the message of God's salvation through Christ crucified. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, I pray, I pray that this, this simple but deeply profound truth, this word, singular word of the cross, Christ crucified, would, would, would not just be something we look to as an example, but it, it, we would see it as something that has changed us and, and is something that should shape us, Lord. And so shape us as a church that the contours of this church would be aligned with the contours of the cross. And so help us, Lord. We can't do this on our own. We, we need your grace for this. We need your enabling. We need your spirit to help us in, in all of the ways in which this happens, Father change our perspective to align with the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.